Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Christian Barnes. Christian is currently, and has been for over 25 years, a senior lecturer at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He studied at the University of Wollongong before realizing the limitations of our scientific tools left him feeling empty. He then traveled across the world for a year learning meditation and Buddhist practices. Christian has also dedicated himself to his community as a yoga and meditation teacher. Today, Christian will let us know how an early life experience began his relationship with mortality. All right, Christian, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, um, my professional background is uh, I've been uh, teaching as a lecturer at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, um, an exercise science program uh, since 1996. And... I've taught like 23 different different subjects in that area, um, which is a lot. And uh, I've also been a, a yoga teacher for a yoga and meditation teacher for about the same length of time. Um, and uh, as you probably tell from the accent, I'm not from around here. So not from around <laughs> here, as they say. Um, I'm from Australia, and uh, I came here. You know, when I finished my um studies i did a bit of a backpacking trip around the world for a a year to try to uh you know find myself i guess and i've ended up over here and uh married an american lass and got a job bought a house had three kids and 26 seven years later whatever it is i'm here i am still so um with the good fortune of chatting with you yeah, here you are, and here here we are. Lucky to have you here. And um, do you remember your first experience with mortality? Yeah. Um, yep. So when I was um, four years old, uh, I found my two-year-old brother um, in a pool across the road from my house and um, he had been missing for some time and he was, you know, obviously uh, dead in the pool. And oh my God. I, um, that was my first very real um, brush with, with, uh, with death. And it, as a four year old, it was, as you can imagine a whole lot to process. Um, you know, I've commented on the, the fact that I'm, I'll never forget when they he was wearing this little red jumpsuit and they pulled him out of the pool and he had these bright blue eyes, you know, and there were these young little kids' eyes are so, the white of their eyes are so bright white and mm-hmm. his bright blue eyes. I remember just with these eyes open looking and I just could not comprehend that the life that, um, you know, was behind those eyes was now gone. And it just, I couldn't um, fathom the idea that this little brother of mine had been, you know, for two years of my short life, half of my short life had been my intimate companion was suddenly um, gone, all of that just gone, because 
his face was down in the water for a little bit too long. And um, I think, uh, yeah, so there was a lot of just um, didn't make sense to me. And as time progressed, I really uh, felt that he didn't like, I, I think I kept, from my perspective, I came to understand he had, he, yes, his body was gone, but there was a powerful presence of him in my life. My whole life always mm -hmm. felt like he was hanging out above my, over my left shoulder. And, uh, <laughs> um, so it never felt like he left even mm -hmm. though I just, I guess it was a, anyway, I, I, that's whether that was a coping the way I coped, but, uh, there would be things happening in my life where there'd be a, a presence that was uh, so palpable so often that I just became came to accept it and not argue with it. And um, anyway, yeah. So I think that really set me on the path very young to wondering about this whole thing. And, you know, obviously my parents, you know, 80, something like 85% of parents get divorced um, when they lose a child. Mm. So my parents had a lot of struggles. My mother was eight months pregnant with my sister when wow. this happened. Mm. And as a parent myself, with I just I uh, I completely understand the how traumatic it was for them. And so there was a lot of lot of struggles in the house because of that. Um, understandably and i think it took me i had a pretty rough relationship particularly with my mother for a long time and then um and it wasn't until i really i was done with school and i went on my my journey of discovery and my around the world trip that i really you know i i i want to i, I want to say forgive my mother but that's not fair at all because there was nothing to forgive because she was doing the best that she could but i guess i I developed an understanding of that and had a difficult relationship with her then, but now I have a wonderful relationship with my mother. And I, you know, it was just, um, I just, I think I, I needed to, I needed to understand from an adult perspective and from, um, I know, you know, a, a perspective that was a little higher, I guess, than I had been mired in. Mm -hmm. And it was a uh, tremendously healing process anyway. So yeah as a uh, four-year-old was that your first memory or do you remember things a little bit before that time or yeah it's, i've you know sometimes i've wondered that i have memories of that time and i i can't put them in any kind of chronological order it's certainly mm -hmm. it's certainly the one of the most potent um memories i have other memories of of my brother reese so mm. of him yeah, so I guess I do have memories of him of prior to that. Um, yeah, so but yeah, that was a, that was a big one. That you know, I dreamt about him all the time, and um, yeah, that's it. And that, you, know, you don't have the coping skills when you're a kid to deal with that. So right, right. I mean, and you said you were confused, which was probably an understatement. Yeah, the feeling that you had of of something over your shoulder. Can you tell us more about what that felt like and, and how you ultimately got to the point of accepting it and what it was like before you accepted it? Yeah. Um, well, I'll be honest. I think I, when I was, when I was little, I don't think I really, it felt very natural to be honest. Um, and then I think 
it just was like, oh, okay, there's this presence and it's kind of occupying the same space in my mind as the presence of my brother did, other than the visuals, but just the emotional presence of his his reality of his reality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as I got older, I maybe I, I know I started to share that. I remember kind of sharing things for me of, of a spiritual nature with my mother. And I remember her just kind of scoffing at me, telling me that oh, when I get older, I'll wake up and realize that none of that's true and just forget about it. And I think um, that probably led to me now having doubts about it. And then um, maybe you, I think was part of the challenging relationship I had with my mother. <laughs> I was just going to um, ask you that if that was probably, yeah. if that was part of the rift that, yeah, I don't think it was too, I was too conscious of it, but you know, there, you know, my, I think for my mother, it was, you know, she just had to cope with, she just was in get on with it mode um, mm-hmm. because she had me and she had my brain, you know, as my sister who came along and uh, she was a stay at home mom and just working, trying to do the best, she, you know, she kept, my mother came from an abusive parent and uh, you know, a drunken father who abused her, who didn't, I wouldn't say abused her, verbally and emotionally abused her anyway. And mm-hmm. um, of course, he has his own story, been in World War II. And anyway, that one, I could go on for, anyway, so it was, you know, these cycles tend to continue. So I think she was just in get on with it mode and uh, didn't have time for that kind of thing because it might require her to think a little too hard about it. And so... Um, anyway, that was part of what I realized in forgiving in uh, forgiving her. But um, yeah, but I think her insensitivity, um, I think she would say things like, you're only four, what could you possibly remember? Mm. Um, and and I'm like, well, there's I've got this whole <laughs> massive, memory bank full of images and sounds and thoughts and feelings that is like a Pandora's box when I open it up and to kind of tell me that it's not real was, um, yeah, that was certainly kind of, you know, kind of a challenge for sure. Um, but I think that's part of what drove me to the presence of that drove me to, uh, understand and, um, you know, as the, Remember the story of the of the Buddha, one of one of the Buddha's um, disciples. You know, Buddha was talking about the importance of having a teacher who can um, guide you on the path. And one of his students said to him, "Well, you didn't have a teacher." And he said, "Yes, I did." He said, "Death was my teacher," mm. and um, that really struck me. And uh, um, so I think that in many ways that was my first teacher. And oh, uh, oh, yeah. someone like my mother was there to, uh, you know, well, I'm like thinking, well, that's not a satisfactory perspective. <laughs> I, need, I need to find another one. When did you find Buddhism? Um, I think, you know, I, I didn't, we didn't grow up in the, I know we did not grow up with no religion in my family whatsoever. It was the religion of the beach, basically. Um, <laughs> okay. And, yeah. In the outdoors. And um, so I think when I, when I got to university, I think I had, I, I had read of things here and there, but I, I hadn't really, um, 
I don't know. Well, I, I guess I, I'm pretty sure I did do some light readings on things, but I, I got into I got into meditation maybe my second year as undergrad, and I just remember I just remember sitting there doing this meditation and having the most joyous, um, deeply peaceful love-filled experience of my life sitting there doing absolutely nothing mm. and so much of my life so I, I played professional rugby for a couple of years and was kind of really focused on that um and then getting you know i was doing that while i was going to school and um, I think it was probably right around the time my rugby, my rugby career ended because my, uh, my knee was shot. I just couldn't do it anymore. And um, all this chasing goals, chasing the accomplishment of things, and you would have these moments of satisfaction. And But then, you know, it would soon be replaced by the next thing I had to do, next goal to be accomplished. And... Here I was sitting down doing absolutely nothing, experiencing more joy and love uh, than I had ever in my whole life. And I was like, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Um, that the sitting down doing nothing in meditation was uh, bringing me more joy than any goal I'd ever accomplished in my life. And um, so, you know, so then, then began the fury of, I had not been a reader. I never read. No interest in reading when I was younger. I was like, I'm gonna. Why would I? From my perspective, I'm like, where the heck would I want to sit and read about somebody else's experience of something when I can go out there and do it myself? Like, mm. it's never made any sense to me. But, <laughs> at the, but at the, t you know, then once I realized there's a whole world of learning to be had, um, books became a, yeah massive part of life and then um, I know that Buddhism was um, an early interest in particular Zen Buddhism that that really struck a chord with me just the simplicity of it of of Zen and um, the kind of uh, there is there's kind of nothing to do just sit and obviously found it tremendously challenging but something really resonated uh, for me in that but I read about all sorts of other Buddhism, you know, and then I, my real immersion went in Buddhism was when I was uh, on my backpacking trip around the world. And I was in, um, I was surfing in Indonesia and I saw a little uh, board, like a message board. And it had, um, you know, a silent meditation retreat. And this is the days before internet. This would have been like 1994, I guess, something mm. like that. And um, I said, right ahead for a place in the two-week you know, uh, silent meditation retreat. And it was at a place called uh, Wat Khao Tham on Kopangan Island in the Gulf of Thailand. And it was right about when I was, it was right when I was going to be in Thailand. You know, I had like this round the world ticket where I could, I could travel from east to west for a year. The ticket was valid for, and I had six different stops. And I flew to Bali and then I was going to fly out of Bangkok and Thailand. And I gave myself like three months to get through, go through the Indonesian archipelago and up through Malaysia and Thailand and fly to Bangkok. So it was going to work out that I was going to be in the area. So I rode ahead and, you know, it was like six weeks out or something. And I remember just, you know, just turning up and going, man, I hope they got my letter. And, uh, 
uh, and they did, and they had a they had a place for me there. And um, so this was uh, Vipassana uh, Buddhism, and uh, we had a um, you know you couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't talk, you weren't supposed to look at anybody in the you look at anybody in the eye. Mm. You were to we got up at four o'clock in the morning with this huge brass bell that would ring underneath your hut and by 4 30 had to be in the meditation hall and we meditated all day doing um four different kinds of meditations it was a, a 45 minute seated meditation 45 minute standing meditation 45 minute walking meditation where you you draw a line in the courtyard somewhere and just walk back and forth along the line for 45 minutes and then we had a 45 minute working meditation where you'd have to do some kind of menial task, you know, um, sweeping was my thing. So I was, I do I had a sweeping job and I do that for 45 minutes and you had to make that a meditation too. And then even when you were eat, we'd, we'd only eat two meals a day. And each time you would eat, you'd have to, um, sit there and contemplate, you know, like where did the rice come from? And the, the eating was a meditation too. You know, they would talk about how the, the farmer planted the rice and, you know, well, they created a field for it and then planted the rice and then flooded the, the rice paddy and then the sun and the, you know, the, the water and the nutrients in the soil would grow the rice and then the farmer would drain the foot, drain the field and then pull the rice and then, thresh the rice and then clean, you know, separate the chaff from the rice, then clean the rice and then store the, you know, store the rice in some container and then transport the rice to where you, and then somebody would get it out and cook it for you. And then somebody would serve it onto your plate. And there you were about to eat the product of all of that. Mm -hmm. And then you would do the same thing with the potato. And then, <laughs> wow. Wow. And, um, it was extraordinary how little food I needed to feel full, mm. feel satiated. The, the gratitude that you had just for that, because you, you just really, you're already kind of hypersensitive doing this practice. Um, and um, you, so the gratitude you got out of the meal, you didn't need to eat as much to feel full. So two meals a day, small meals, it was plenty. It's all I needed. Um, and that's, I learned a lot um, from that. And then Lord, you know, anyway, I could, I could spend an hour, hours actually just talking about that whole experience at the, at that. But um, so that was my, that was my live to introduction to Buddhism. And how long um, was that? Two weeks. Two weeks. And did you get, was there one of the meditation styles that you got more out of? I don't know if that's the right way to ask that question, but I think you know what yeah. I'm trying to say. Well, Vipassana, Vipassana is a meditation. You know, that's a that's a kind of just using the physical physical sensations from the body, um, and just being aware of those. And that's that was the Vipassana practice. And as a living in a body that had been just smashed to pieces from years of rugby dealing with pain was massive i was in so much pain it was insane sitting there in the tropical heat for hours and hours and hours and standing and walking it's just like oh um 
So uh, that was that technique. And um, is, is that considered a non-dual practice? No. No, okay. no, I think that was that's you are an observer, a separate observer watching the body, okay. watching the sensations from the body. Um, but more recently, like, uh, but that's kind of the practice of Zen or the practice of, a, you know, Advaita Vedanta's uh, non-dual practice is, is, is much closer to what I do these days. Um, I think in the early stages, I had to, as I, in that experience, I, I say I, I lost my mind. But I lost my old mind and gained a new one. So there was there was some work to do in this kind of outward going this um, this exclusive meditation practice, I guess you call it, where you try to focus on one thing at the exclusion of all other things. Sure. And I think I needed that to kind of scour and clean the mind, um, and that continued for some time. But there came a point for me where I realized um, that the direct kind of the, the idea of going directly to what I was looking for was, was more suited to me. Um, that all, all the, 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 the practices of, of, you know, focusing on a single point are all very important. And then, so then what happens once you are intimately focused on the single point, well, eventually you let it go and what's left. Right. So I, I got to the point where I'm like, well, let's just go to what's left. And uh, um, so that's kind of, that's much more what I do these days. When you started with Zen Buddhism, were you using koans? Um, I got, oh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry, my screen just went blank on me. Or maybe it's because I'm not doing, moving around on it or something. Um, the... The um, no, I, I, I tell you what, um, Ramana Maharshi's question, Who am I? Mm -hmm. really became um, a major practice for me. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Oh, mate, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I, I, okay, my screen's doing all weird things, but as long as you're there, that's great. Okay, um. So the, the question, who am I really? And then, and then it was initially it's a, it's a kind of a, the netty netty process where you say, you know, basically ask, who am I? And then they look and, and essentially, and listen and observe, be aware. And no matter what answer my mind comes up with, I would say not that, not that because mm of the recognition that, um, you know, it's kind of like if you imagine infinite dark space and if there's just a single point of light in that infinite darkness, there's no way of knowing that that, that light is moving unless there is a reference point or there is that which is observing it. From, you know, if I'm looking at a particular point and need to know there needs to be a point of observation to know that this light is moving. Just right. a single point of light in infinite darkness. There's no reference. There's no way of knowing movement. So any thought that I would have about who I am, I recognize that, well, I'm the one that is aware of that thought of who I am. So I can't be that thought. How can I be that thought? If I was that thought, when the thought stopped, 
I would stop. Mm -hmm. I don't stop. I continue. So what is the nature of that which knows the thought? Because we get so easy to be completely occupied by the thought and not the, the awareness within which the thought emerges and that which, you know, um, the th that which the thought is made of and that in which the thought exists and into which the thought disappears anyway. Right, right. It's just like the concept of subject object, but yeah, you know, really there is no subject or object. There is just the no there is just knowing. Um, yeah, the the thought, yes. So so then it's you know, so kind of uh, for me it, be, it began with this process of doing that and then you know I think I'll, I'll never forget the moment a moment where I for so many years of searching when I woke up I I quit school because I needed answers to this to this burning spiritual questions that I had I just could not be in the in the mind anymore i needed to get out of the mind and i needed to get into spirit or whatever you want to call it and what, what was your original intention to study in school what was that initial kind of um scientific you know, I sport, question i played sports i loved exercise and I, I wanted to you know i think i wanted to stay involved with exercise and activity and i knew how good it was for myself and how good it was for people and i thought i'd love to know how to teach others to do it. Um, so that's what got me into the school side of stuff. And then okay. I think, you know, and then I never planned on teaching here. I am being teaching for, but I never once was that part of my intention was to teach at a university or teach anywhere. I never really ever yeah. had a plan to do it. I just kept, I kept getting asked back to do it again and again. So I kept <laughs> um, and I was like, well, I guess, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then, and then you're talking about these other questions that basically you couldn't answer in a lab based on the technology that's available. So yeah, what, yeah, were, and what were those questions? Well, well, um, I think, you know, uh, what happens when we die mm -hmm. was one of them. And what is the, and what is like, um, <clears throat> I, I think really, so I looked at, I looked at the people around me, the, the people at the university working and, and, and none of, none of them did I want to be like, mm. I wanted to learn how to be the most loving, kind person I could possibly be. And I did not see that. And not and wise, like having a wisdom that could having something that could bring an understanding and a way of being that brought people peace, that brought people joy, that brought people a sense of something beyond, um, just you know, something beyond. And I didn't see that in the people who were my teachers, the professors, the lab folks. Um, and I didn't see them asking any of those questions. And when I br would bring them up, they would scoff at me and say, um, they had no interest in it. Right. And, you know, you can't measure it. What there is, you know, but yeah, anyway, so I just didn't, I didn't see a path 
there for that. Now, it may have just been, you know, well, I'm sure it is because there are people doing pretty amazing research involved that um, does definitely hint at something beyond a material view. And um, so I was probably just uh, in the wrong place, but the, um, I don't regret at all because direct firsthand experience was what I needed. <laughs> and that's what I got. And that's in that spiritual process. In the, in the email exchange that we first had talking about this conversation, you mentioned Donald Hoffman, who I've heard yeah. speak on a couple of different podcasts. And every time I listen to him, it's so far over my head that like, I think it makes sense, but I'm also not really sure what he's saying. Right. Um, it's pretty high level, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if I would really like it if you could kind of break down some of his ideas. Well, I tell you the main, the main thing that I have gotten from, see, I guess <clears throat> I've been frustrated at um, kind of, I guess I would call it mainstream science and this, uh, you know, academic institutions, uh, most of them are for the most part, part of that. Um, a, uh, a not willing to look at the data that is out there that points to the inadequacy of a materialist point of view as being the, that, 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 that foundational to the universe is matter and that everything else comes from matter. And there's so much, so much phenomena out there that is, you know, for in, in scientific parlance, massive data sets of statistical significance that show that this materialist viewpoint just is not sustainable. And it's not, there's too much that is happening that's not explained by. Mm -hmm. So where I get, you know, I kind of piecemeal bits of information from everywhere. And from Hoffman, what I really got was and one piece of research where he's talking about uh, where it's an evolution and where they did a bunch of experiments um, and showed mathematically that we were selected for, you know, survival and fitness, not for uh, understanding reality as it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard someone and else talk about that slightly differently but basically like who, who, all, who sorry I, I can't remember the name right now i will look okay. it up but um i heard another high level neuroscientist talking about this concept slightly differently but essentially re reiterating the point that you're making that everything that we see and observe or are capable of seeing and observing is based on the simple goal of reproducing essentially Right. But there's all these other elements that exist that we just weren't selected to perceive. Right. Right. And if we if we just operate under the assumption that the only that the full extent of reality is known by our five senses, yet those five senses, we were not evolved to determine anything, to know things that might be on be beyond those five senses, then the, then it may be <clears throat> at the very least gives us a little bit of humility to say, well, maybe there's another way of seeing things. And there's actually 
a huge amount of data out there to show that, um, you know, like, oh, geez, I could, I could go on. Dean Radin has done a massive amount of research on, on psychic phenomena. And um, if one thinks that it's, that there's not statistically significant evidence for psychic, for the, the proof of psychic um, uh, phenomena, then read, um, gosh, I can't remember, Kath, Catherine Utz, UTS, I think, or UTZ or something is the name of the, she's a, a um, statistics professor and she's the head of the American Statistical Association. And in her inaugural address to that group, she, she worked on um, the government, the military's uh, remote viewing work where these uh, certain talented people were able to, from for in the way they described it, project their awareness out of their body, go and observe a site and then describe it and draw it. And um, their level of accuracy was like a six, seven sigma significance. Like this is how people win Nobel prizes based on those levels of significance, you know, one in a billion kind of stuff that these the, against chance that these people are doing this. Um, and she's, you know, from her perspective, she's like, it's not a question of are these phenomena real? Statistically, statistically they're absolutely as valid as like, in, if, if, if I was given this statistical, you know, I think again, another person gave an example when they did the uh, long, longitudinal trials on, um, on um, oh, what is the, for blood thinning, my mind is going blank right now, medication, aspirin. When they okay. were doing these trials and they started in the middle of the trial, they started to observe with this massive statistical significance, this drop in certain risks. And they just said, all right, we need to, we don't even need to keep doing this. It's so statistically significant. We need to start, you know, recommending or, you know, that this be a part, you know, obviously I know data's come out since then, but sure. the point is that the, that the, the statistical significance was, was, is so compelling in this medical context why is it not as compelling in the psychic context? And it's just because of this absolute, people won't even look at it. And, um, and I, I, don't know what it, I don't know what it means, but well, it points to the fact that how do people get, how do people get this information? If, if the brain creates consciousness, how is it possible for people to get this information? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, those are, those are questions that I certainly don't have answers to. But yeah. I, I do wonder if, the reason that it's ignored on some level is because it it kind of is counterproductive to like a capitalistic materialistic model and that's you know for better or for worse that's the world that we live in and i don't yeah. i mean everything everything is slowly well arguably quickly just becoming medicalized or monetized and if, if we can't explain how these phenomena occur, good luck explaining to the industrialists why we need to pay attention to it. Right. Well, it, yeah, I, I, I feel you, but I, I wonder, it's like, what is the potential in it? Like, if these people can do these things and you can train people to do it in more effectively, and like, um, like, 
maybe they're just not fully grasping the potential of this for humanity. Um, but maybe that might be the optimistic optimist in me. <laughs> um, like the the um, experiments on um, on uh, the oh, the random number generators, the kind of quantum tunneling random number generators, and they have people will you know, and they randomly select a one or a zero and completely random like if you know it's as it's as random as random can be uh, which is not easy to accomplish but this is the best we have for random complete randomness and um well, i don't know if it's the best but i know it's one of the best i'm not a physicist but i'm just going on what i've been working on going on dean radin's work sure um and so you know you run the trial millions of times and over time you should get an even distribution of zeros and ones well if you sit a person down uh, while the machine's running and if they have the intention that ones should be appearing that you know ones not zeros ones 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 and you do this with one person and they do it for a period of time as long as they can concentrate and another person does it another person does it and then you do this millions and millions of times well, guess what? The numbers come out skewed towards ones. This hmm. should not be happening. Hmm. And the thing, the part that the reason I brought this one up is because when you break groups up into meditators and non-meditators, mm -hmm. the meditators do better. Yeah. I... And it doesn't surprise me that that happens, but, but it's like, okay, so what's going on here? How is it that just intention and the mind and the power of the mind can actually change, you know, something that's supposed to be random and make it, you know, the effect is small, but it's real. Um, and there are countless examples of this. Um, when I, from a health and wellness perspective, when I do my spiritual, when I, when I am in, when I'm in, when I simply rest back, rest back in my being, my body is flooded with feel-good chemicals. Mm -hmm. I get this joy exploding in my chest. My brain gets all tingly and electrified and lit up. Or maybe it's actually quiet. It just feels that way. And I feel this deep DNA relaxation in me. And if that's... And I'm like... well. Um, through just an under, just resting in my own being, my physical body reacts in this way. You're right that I don't know that pharma, the, the pharmacy pharmaceutical industry wants to know about that, but I bet there's a whole lot of people out there who do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had experiences similar um, where you know finding emptiness or or pure love or whatever word you want to use for it. Mm -hmm. um and it's it is really hard to describe to someone that's not had the experience because they just kind of look at you cross-eyed right um yeah so what, I, what meditation practice do you use mate i i try to do non-dual practice um i my vocabulary is not nearly as advanced as yours around these these topics i i keep telling myself I'm going to do more formal reading around meditation right. or Bud Buddhism, but you got, well, a, you got a pretty busy plate. Well, I just ultimately feel like, uh, 
I should just meditate if that makes right. sense. Um, and maybe that's kind of going back to your uh, story of not really being a huge reader and then finding out that reading was a good um, ad addition to the direct experience. But I, I've experimented with different forms of, um, I guess, well, after talking with you now, I think they were different forms of Vipassana um, where I would like take certain thoughts or emotions or experiences and just focus on them. And with not necessarily the goal, because then it becomes this counterintuitive thing of right. not meditating for goals and all that kind of confusing vernacular. But right. for the sake of this conversation, with the goal of letting go of whatever that emotion or event or um, trauma was. Right. Because, I mean, the more that you pull it close, then in my experience, you're able to let it go. And then that opens up this new space for love and connectivity and all of those positive emotions that you've been talking about. Um, right. And then other another form of meditation is just kind of like I've really found success with doing eye eyes open meditations and yeah. just that really helps me kind of accomplish that non dual meditation. Um, and I, again, I feel like I'm lacking the vocabulary to really to go deeper here. Um, no, I I I, feel, I hear you. It's a um, I one the reality is. You know, the, the goal, again, would be li life is a meditation. So you've got to know how to do it eyes open or eyes closed. Um, right. And the, you know, it's kind of like I, I sometimes think of it as a little bit like the, the inward path is the beginning where you try to find the nature of your own reality, your who one really is as, and I'm just, you know, self-aware being, beingness itself. Then once that realization happens, the, the knowing our nature and understanding that nature, what is the nature of that, that I am? What is the nature of it? Right. And then to me, the third step is when you understand it is then to look outward and say and recognize that very same nature every in everywhere and everything. And, and then you, and then you've got the ability to drop in at a moment's notice to that space. Right. And that's when life really does become a meditation. And it's it's not like your meditation formal practice is a separate activity from anything right. else. Right. Life. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's what the question in the, you know, the, your uh, podcast on mortality and that's the, that kind of um, first and second uh, kind of stages I was talking about there is where to me that can really be dealt with because when we look at our, our nature, well, like I, I, when I, I find no limit to it, I don't know where it begins and where it ends. And there is no time 
So any fear of death is a projection into the future. Mm-hmm. And the, the future is a, a mental construct. There is the only thing we I can experience an idea. I can, you know, use my imagination to imagine what the future might look like and difficult scenario. But I do that in the present moment and in now. And when I look at now, now is there is no end to now. It is limitless. And then the, the, in my experience, the, the fear of death, the fear of the potential of suffering dissolves in now, it dissolves in the now. And when I, I was having a chat, my 15-year-old son was just having a bit of an existential crisis and he was saying, but why, why? What's the point of all of this? Mm. And, um, you know, he said, wait, 100, he said, 150 years. Like, what if, what if any of this is going to matter to anybody? And I said, well, uh, when do you experience 150 years? He's like, well, I might imagine it. I was like, well, when does that happen? It happens right now in this moment. I'm like, and in this moment, as you just rest in this moment, truly rest in it, is there anything wrong, really? with right here, right now, other than what your mind suggests maybe is wrong with it? Is that just an addition to it? One of my favorite questions to just kind of drop in is, what is there to do if there is no problem to solve? Right, right. And yes, and coming from that, and then so when you're okay, if there is no problem to solve, there is nothing to be done. There is no problem to solve. It is a resting in the present moment. And then when the nature of this physical reality jumps up and bites you and there is a problem to solve, if you are re- if you are coming from that inner stillness, um, you have the opportunity to act out of love, to act out of kindness, and not act out of reactivity and fear and whatever. Um, which in my experience, the outcomes are way better when I come from a place of, of uh, love and kindness um, towards at, self and others. Yeah. Or at least non-reactivity. Yeah. Well, yes. you've, you've brought up your kids a couple of times now. Do you have a practice with your family of meditation or are they no. interested? No, no. Okay. <laughs> it's, I, my youngest is the only one who really has expressed an interest <laughs> in these things. And that's one of those, you can't, you know, I... I'm a golfer and a surfer and I tried to get my kids doing those things and I couldn't. And one day my, one of my kids was like, decided he wanted to do it. So now he's a mad surfer and joins me, but these are not, this is not, uh, this is something that's got to come from within for people. And um, yeah, so I don't uh, just, and do this fail frequently, but ever trying to come from that place of love and kindness and um it with kids it's a it's a you know you're kind of responsible for having them survive and thrive in the world um you know in my perspective raise them to be um you know independent people who learn to think of other people before they think of themselves and um we human beings are kind of inherently pretty selfish at times so it it takes 
it takes kind of a mixture of of love and kindness and a stern hand done trying to do it as an expression of that love and kindness and not reactive i don't you know i'm far from perfect in my ability to do that but i'm a lot better now at 52 than i was at when i first had kids at 28 or whatever it was mm-hmm. um, but yeah i try to be an example and um yeah kids are uh, i remember when i had two young kids and i remember playing golf with a guy who'd raised three kids successfully and i bowed down at his feet <laughs> Literally, <laughs> i was like dude how have you done that it's the hardest thing uh, but anyway it's gotten easier over time Get a little bit better at it but always room for improvement that's for sure but if i tell you if it wasn't for um, my foundation for me in meditation and what i learned through that process i can't imagine um how i would have done it so i really know you said that you don't have a cell phone or any social media and i think you also said you don't have a personal computer at home how do you how do you get by in in the 21st century in in north america without any (laughs) technology on you well i i don't have a phone um and i don't do social media at all but i do have a, a laptop that i do take home but i i um it's a, it comes out in emergencies only. Um, I really try to avoid to, I try to do my work at work and then home is home. Um, I don't know. I don't, um, it's another, it's kind of another thing, I guess, pulling one out what, you know, pulling one outward, uh, into, uh, the future out of here and now, um, for me, that's what it, I've observed that it does. I mean, I, I sit and talk with people and they've got their Apple watches and they're getting texts and notifications constantly and they can't even have a conversation with me without looking down at their phone and their, their wrist and tapping it. And I'm just like, um, I want to be fully present and I mm-hmm. find it just to be another distraction, another thing. And it all really, a lot of it started as I I came to this country with $400 to my name. I had no money. <laughs> thought of spending that much money on a phone was just ridiculous to me. And I'm like, when I go somewhere and do something, I just want to be doing it and not, um, nobody's ever complained that I haven't responded to a text ever. (laughs) 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 I've never been distracted with a notification or an email unless I'm intentional. I'm like, here I am, you know, but I'm, I'm playing golf. I'm surfing. I'm going for a walk in the woods, going for a walk in my neighborhood. Um, I'm there. That's, that's what I'm doing. And, um, and there's just, you know, there's just an infinite, infinite distractions. Um, there's also a lot of things to learn. This is, you know, I'm at, I'm at my office, at, at my desk at work. I have full internet access and I, I use it to play nice music in the background or do, do some research. Um, but you can, there is, uh, there are more rabbit holes in the internet than there are bloody atoms in the universe. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a wonderful message to remind people of is all the distractions that are out there and you can't avoid them unless you're actually aware of them to begin with. Right. Yeah. And I just, they, you know, they can be helpful, but in my, in my experience that the things that bring me the most joy um, start with that inner stillness and quiet. And I just, I, that's um, getting lit up by 
all the commentary and all the things out there on the on the internet makes it a lot harder to do that. Do you still teach yoga and meditation? I have taken, you know, when the pandemic came in, that that stopped, um, and I did it for a really, really long time, and I had taken a break, um, and I'm I'm maybe beginning to get back into um, teaching some meditation again, perhaps if the interest is there, um, and yeah, so I, I kind of the. I found, you know, I got into yoga because, you know, the purpose of Hatha Yoga and the, the exercises, the postures and the breathing exercises was to prepare people for meditation. Mm-hmm. And I got into it, you know, it was the original intention behind it and the, the lifestyle, the vegetarian lifestyle, that kind of stuff. And um, I got into it to prepare me for meditation. It was all a spiritual purpose. However, I found for the vast majority of people when I teach yoga, it's really much more about a relaxation um you know which is great i mean i there's that's that's also a wonderful benefit to it um and kind of hot yoga bod and you know whatever else is going around that and i really wanted to dive into the meditation and what's learned from meditation and i found 99.9 percent of people weren't nearly as interested in that as i was and i teach exercise i teach strength and conditioning all day at work and kind of it just became another strength and conditioning thing almost and so right. I, I just, for me, I needed a little break from it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Routine. It's interesting because I had tried to get into like a yoga routine a few months ago with the hope of it being a nice dovetail to my meditation practice. But like you said, it didn't seem like anyone else was using it for that purpose. Right. So it didn't feel like a good fit to continue doing that. Right. And I've found after all these years of yoga, I get into a meditation pose um, just like that. I don't need to warm up for it. Like if the point was to get my body, I don't don't feel that I need it. Sometimes not that I don't stretch now. As soon as I feel my body tightening up, I do. But if the point was to quieten the body, quieten the mind to prepare for meditation, I find I can just slip straight into it now. I don't need it so much. But I fully understand why. And this is... This is no diss on yoga. I, lo- I love that it's when I first started teaching here, when I, 96, I got certified. There were like three or four of us in this town. I went to the UNCW um, health center and said, I, I asked them if they would, I thought I'd was like to teach a yoga class to like students and staff or faculty or whatever. And they went, hmm, yoga. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think anybody would be really interested in that. And I'm like, well, you might be surprised. And, um, yeah, so things have come a long way since then. For sure. I had, I had a friend who was a yoga teacher who did the same teacher training I did and went out and is in, um, in, uh, up in Beaufort. He tried to get a yoga class started in a space in a church there, and he was told that uh, – that uh, from what they understood, a yoga, that a yoga was to quieten the mind and an idle mind is the workshop of the devil and you will do none of that yoga teaching here. Okay, wow. But I, I taught uh, yoga at a church, another church down here in Wilmington for many years. So it's not the same everywhere. <laughs> but it's just we've come a long way in understanding and knowing the benefit. And it's hugely popular and for a good reason. It's, it's, it brings a lot of people a lot of, a lot of benefit. Yeah, agreed. I, I again wasn't. I was like you're saying. I was not dissing it. I just didn't no, suit my my pursuit or or wishes for 
for what I yeah. wanted. Yeah, I was I was kind of talking about the negative side of it a bit, so I just wanted to wanted to caveat that and fully fully encourage people to get something out of it. I got I got so much out of it for so long, um, massive. I can't imagine my life without it. Certainly. Well, we've talked for about an hour and covered a ton of stuff. Is there anything else that you were wanting to talk about um, when thinking about this this conversation? Oh, um, I just, I guess I, I, uh, I wish for that all of your listeners, um, that they find what they're looking for. Um, and uh, yeah, and because, and stay true to it. Um, the world needs love and kindness in large measure. And uh, I hope that we can all be the best examples of that that we can possibly be. So I, that's kind of um, what I would wish for everybody. Any final comment um, directly about mortality? Mm. Um, if one is experiencing the fear of death, fears associated with it, there is a path to finding peace um, and not having those fears anymore. It is possible. Um, and I think if one uh, wishes to do that, to, to uh, <clears throat> come to peace with the with the reality of mortality that putting it you know kind of uh, putting that out there in the universe and um, that the guidance will be provided and it's probably a lot of uh, inner work to be done to understand that but it's there if that's what we choose to do um, that's how we choose to respond to the fear and kind of be like the Buddha and death is the uh, one of the ultimate teachers and uh, let it be let it be that teacher awesome i think that's a, a good place to stop on um christian thank you so much for your time and sharing so much about you and your practices um this has been excellent thank you too matt i know we kind of went all over the place there but just that was a free form as you said so that's where we went it was free form appreciate it mate the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with at least three people. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.